Hey, welcome to episode 65, part two of Shit We Don't Talk About, powered by Helix Interactive. My guest today is Rachel Giftakis-McCumber, and our topic is religious cults. This episode is deeply personal, and it's also super long. That's what she said, which is why it's in two parts. Rachel and I dive into our experiences of being raised in a born-again Christian cult. And listen, trigger warnings abound in this episode and include spousal and child abuse, essay, and religion, which, in my opinion, is just about as triggering as you can get. So please take special care while listening to this, especially if this is something you have in your history or that you've experienced. And as always, there's an accessibility transcript that can be found in the show notes at shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com. And the identifiers for the show are, both of us are white blonde females, Rachel's in her 40s, has long hair, and I'm in my 50s and I have short blonde hair. And we both swear a lot, so wear headphones. All right, strap in. It gets good. Here we go. ended up lightning and lightning and then through therapy ended up resolving. And so again, you come back to people under pressure will work. We are humans. We are not going to be infallible. And so people will say, well, how could you stay and how could this happen? Da, 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 da. It's that, like you said earlier, frog in the pot. It heats up slowly and then all of a sudden you realize you're cooking alive. Yes. The, and it's the absolute opposite. I mean, folks, do you see the irony in this too of it's the absolute opposite yeah. of what you think would be the effect of that, of having exactly. it be such a, a pressure cooker thing. And I think what's interesting of what keeps people in this a lot too, you can hear it all the time. I, I listened to an episode and I'll put links in the show notes too, of a podcast that I love called Something Was Wrong. And she somehow was contacted by the daughter of a man who he and his father had survived Jonestown. And the, I mean, okay. the, I mean, you know, for us, like that happened. I don't even know if you were, you, you might've not, it might, might've been right when you were born. I knew, I knew it deeply because my mom would quite honestly always refer to how long is it until we're drinking the Kool-Aid? She would actually say that to me when I was, I remember when I was in middle school and in high school, as she started oh, to be shit. more and more like, wait a minute, how far are we going? Um, you know, when do we drink the Kool-Aid? So her, she was very much the true believer type. And as the scales started to fall from her eyes, she wow. would just be like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, it, it just, it was, you know, it's not what I signed up for. And I think the only reason that this started to happen for her was one, um, she didn't have small children in the home anymore. So, you know, as I got older and stuff like that, and kids started leaving the house and stuff like that, mm -hmm. she had a little bit more time on her hands. And one of the things that these groups do, and, and even in abusive relationships to do, is what they call crazy making. And what it is, is they give you a huge amount of things that you have to complete, hoops you have to jump through. And as a result, it keeps you so busy that you don't pay attention to what's really going on and, and, right. and how intensely crazy this is and how abusive it is. And so again, you know, when she had small children, she was either pregnant, nursing, um, homeschooling because she homeschooled us. And I was fortunate because she actually went out and found an amazing classical education that was not religious based. It was actually secular and um, it was through a private school. So I actually had a school that had my transcript. So my homeschool experience ended up actually being a very positive one, but wow, she was homeschooling. Great. And she was running these homes that had upwards of 12 people living in them. And she had to be at all these meetings and she had to keep the house clean and she had to take care of my father. And 
and she had to meet with women and she had to go to these extra meetings as a person in leadership and so on and so forth. And so this crazy making, you know, really kept her just focused on that. And so then as I left and, and I got older and things like that, she started having a little more time. And that's when the scale started falling from her eyes. But to go back to these structures and how you end up in these situations, there is so much crazy making. Yeah, there really is the meet the meetings. And then, and then for the, the, the men too. And, and as a side note, real quick, folks, if you're involved in an MLM and you don't think that's a cult, do some research. It's called Google. Because <laughs> it really has the reason a lot, crossover here. <laughs> exactly. That has it has a very, very similar structure to that. Lots of meetings, lots of love bombing, uh, falling out of favor for different things because you didn't hit uh, quotas, things like that. Don't think that that's not that's not like that. And they're also very sneaky as well. And I think what's interesting too, yeah. so both of us, at, you know, again, had suffered quite um, a bit of abuse. Have been mine was physical and and sexual and was, uh, not, uh, acknowledged or even they, they knew, but again, entered my, yeah. I've heard from several people, uh, women were told, oh, these words ready, but sister under no circumstances <laughs> are you to lose, leave your husband. That's the kind of thing yep. that we're talking about. Um, but I know that there's, there's yep. damage for men as well in that sense. And we have siblings that, that went through it. And I, I think that's yeah. the thing too, that, that, for, for us as women, uh, the sovereignty and the freedom was taken away, but it, but it is, um, for everyone as well. So let's segue to our escape. Yeah. Um, you know, again, again, again you, you get literally st- escape. And, I mean, and, and it literally was, and you really do get used to the normalcy of this. Let me give, let me give you all a few more examples of things that you don't get when you're involved in an evangelical cult church, born again, Christian church, you don't get Christmas anymore. You barely get holidays. You sure as fuck don't get Halloween. Uh, holidays in general are frowned upon. They, they are, um, satanic. They are worldly. Another little trigger word for that. Um, you know, for me, and I'll, I'll probably share some pictures in the, in the notes too, of, I spent most of my high school, uh, wearing dresses and skirts. And this was in the late seventies, early eighties folks. And I was over here. Mm -hmm. It wasn't fun. I'll just say that, you know, I've been able to recreate myself as an adult, as I, as I mentioned to Rachel, before we started this, I I was very, very quiet until the age of 18. And since then I have not shut up about (laughs) Uh, a lot of things it, it does, you, you become a bit of a uncorked, so to, so to speak, but you know, those are the kind of things you go through as an adult, you know, for the adults, they were required to either live in communal living. I know that you did as well. My, my cousins and my aunts and uncles did too. talk a little bit about that. And then we'll talk escape. Yeah. So uh, they had communal living. So I always say people go, wow, you grew up a cult. And I go, yeah, I go, we got the whole nine yards, odd diet. Um, you know, communal living situation. Sugar was a sin. I love it. Let's see. We did, we did Gearson. We did Pritikin, which is a starvation based diet. And we did zone. So we had all these diets. My grandmother was obsessed with weird diets um, and therapy. Uh, But anyways, we lived in these homes that were either called brother's houses or sister's houses. Hmm. And it would either, it would be usually like, usually it would be a family. Occasionally it would be a man or a woman. But generally, it was a family, and then they would either have men living with them, brothers' homes, or sisters living with them, women living with them, sisters' homes. And um, it was early on decided that my dad should not run a sisters' home because <laughs> it didn't work out real well. I read so that. He, I was like, he, he got found out. He ran brothers' homes. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say he ran. 
we lived in brothers' homes. And so we had, and, and sometimes also couples. At one point in time, we had a family of four, uh, three guys, and a couple living with us. So we always had lots of people living in our home. And when I say living in our home, we literally lived, like, lived together. Like, we had dinner together every night, except Monday nights and Sunday nights. We had breakfast Sunday morning together. We had devotions in the morning. We had, uh, you know, everybody went to church. We all had chores. Uh, if you didn't do your chores, you got signed consequences, and those consequences were usually more work. Um, I, I remember one of the guys in our house digging a pond out front because he had gotten a consequence, you know, just stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, very much that was our our living situation and, and you know, what was going on for us in terms of daily family life. Um, we very much lived this, like, yeah, we lived this every single day. It, it was. Um, and, but the, here's the irony though. Our family didn't have that. And we had, uh, we had a TV. So that was like the ultimate and low man oh my on Lord. the totem pole folks. So we were in this Lucky like, horrible, you. I, I yes and no. Right. Because we couldn't, I, <laughs> so, so for me, I see that that's the thing. Like it's so funny. And then my stepdad was a smoker. And so that really kept us low. My dad was pole. too. Yeah. So there's all my these dad things. was too. Right. But I bet he he was able to hide it. So then but we were over here on the low total. I pole. never mm. yeah. never once saw him with a cigarette. I just I found his cigarettes at one point in time. And his dad didn't agree and thought it was terrible and thought it was a sin. But my dad disagreed and said he didn't believe it was a sin. And it was the only time I found my dad to be even remotely reasonable. Because when he found out I was smoking, he yeah. said I, you know, I can't tell you not to do this because I do it. And I was like in shock. Yeah. And he said, but you know, no man's going to want to marry you. Smoke was essentially what he said, but that was, anyways, but that yeah, was, ni- smoking, that was nice so of him. Right. But it's, it's so funny that, and so <laughs> that, that kept us low on the hierarchy. So that was, that was damaging as well to be in this thing where you always wanted to yeah. uh, be in the popular cool kids. So yeah, it wasn't fun. I wasn't cool at school and I wasn't cool at the, at the church. <laughs> so I kind of had, so now you can see why it was such a, such a, a delight to to get out. We we eventually had our family, and it's interesting. I think everybody who's been through this has their 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 origin story of how they got started, and their then their escape story. Mm-hmm. And it usually is that they that uh, everything the scales fall off the eyes. You know, you see that like you were talking about um, how you how your perception shifts, and you're like, this is crazy, and it's usually pretty abrupt. Yeah. And and luckily for us. Um, uh, the one piece that I escaped that I know that was really hard for you is that my mom, my mom left, she had already left my stepdad. So there's all these dynamics to it. My aunt and uncle also left. So we sort of on mass mm-hmm. safely left, but we still had our families to go to. And that's the yeah. really crucial piece about what happens with cults is that they alienate you so, yeah. so, so much that the fear of leaving in when you see that it's dangerous, that it's abusive, that they're stealing money from you, that they're you know, forcing you to live in a house to pay rent or contributions. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then you're, you're contributions, right. if yeah. you're a single per a single woman or a single person or a single mom, you really are, you've put all your eggs in that basket to stay there. And so when yeah. we left, oh my God, it was just a delight. I cannot tell you like the, the feeling of relief and 
um, the, the freedom. And it took a very, very, very long time to get to that girl. This is why I'm an entrepreneur. I can't stand meetings. I can't stand meetings. Yeah. I don't have to stay in longer than that. Um, I just, there's a lot of weird things that come up for me based on, <laughs> on, on, on that time. But what I didn't have, and I didn't care about luckily was the excommunication piece of, of how much it hurt mm-hmm. for you. To, to when, when your family left yeah. and you were trying so hard to be, and I, and I know you struggled with this too, because I did, I did love being a Christian. I loved um, my relationship with God, but it was so hard to, to, for it to be spit upon and, and bastardized and turned awful. Yeah. And then for you to, to have that pain. Yeah. Yeah. So when I left um, and I left very much like a runaway kind of leaving, mm-hmm. um, but I, I knew that when I, I knew before I left that when I left, that was going to be a cutoff. I was going to be cut off. And when I say cut off, it's, it's like, I wasn't close with my mom's family. Um, I was kind of close with my dad's family and that we saw them more than we saw my mom's family, but there wasn't a lot of familial relationships being encouraged in this group. And so really the family I had, the people who had been at my birthdays, the people who had been at, you know, whose weddings I had gone to and whose kids I had babysat and all this kind of stuff, my entire community was this group in the church that I was in, uh, the local church that I was in, and, and, and extended, but local really a lot. Mm-hmm. And even the person I was working for at the time belonged to the church. And so I knew the second that I left that I was going to end up being shunned, and this was going to be a really big deal. And I actually delayed. I, I wanted to leave earlier, and I delayed, and I delayed, and I delayed um, until I really thought, I'm not going to survive if I don't go. And I remember I left little uh little letters envelopes on my brother's bed and on my um, sister's bed and for my mom because I was very sad to be leaving I didn't want to leave my family um my brother and sister never got them I'm fairly certain somebody got them and threw them away but anyways um but when I left I was excommunicated um and and the excommunication was uh, you know once I started dating then they could use that as a reason um, but I was excommunicated. I ended up being fired from my job. Um, so I had to, you know, find a place to live. I had to find a new job. I, you know, all of that kind of stuff, find a whole new community. I had no frame of reference for the outside world. Um, it really was like moving into a new, a new country almost. Like I didn't understand pop culture references because I hadn't had any TV growing up. That's you know, right. most of what I had read had been like, Agatha Christie and and Robert Louis Stevenson and C.S. Lewis. So it's very like old older English C.S. literature Lewis. and stuff like that. They love and C.S. So, Lewis. Ugh. You know, people <laughs> people would say things and I had no idea what they were referring to. It was like they were speaking. I mean, they were speaking English, but it was a little bit like they were speaking a different language for me. Yeah. Um, my assumptions were not the same assumptions as people around me. It was very much a culture shock for sure. Um, and, and that was really hard. And as a result, I did end up going back to my parents' house for a short amount of time and then leaving again. And it, it wasn't easy to make that break. Um, I did realize very early on that one of the keys to my freedom was, um, was actually money. And, um, that the reason why my dad had not allowed me to get a job before I turned 18 was because he didn't want me to have resources. And when at the, for the short amount of time that I moved back into my parents' house after I turned 18, um, he actually forced me to give him my paycheck at the end of every pay period. So again, I would not have any resources to be able to leave. 
And so it very much showed me like having access to financial resources. And, and this is kind of where it plays into the whole political atmosphere for me right now. Political, monetary resources, access to resources is what gives people freedom. And when women do not have access to resources that provide for them, or they are left with all the responsibility and without any resources, they will end up in these kinds of situations. One of the things that happened for my mother is that after my brother was born, my dad had beat her very severely, very severely. She almost couldn't walk for a couple of days. And, um, and she wanted to leave. And my dad and my grandmother made sure that she was never alone with both David and I, because um, my dad told her, that's fine. If you want to leave me, go ahead, but you will never have your children and you will never see them again. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the early eighties. And I don't think people understand that when I was born, a lot of people, a lot of women still couldn't get checking accounts without their husband's permission. They definitely couldn't get a credit card without their husband's permission. Women had struggled to get home loans, Um, you know, and my mother had stayed home the whole time. So again, you know, she didn't have the ability to just go out and get a job and be able to make enough money to provide for two children and herself. She struggled even after she got out as an, you know, in her forties to, to rebuild her life. And so I watched her go through this. I went through the whole same thing myself. And it tells me, you know, don't think that, oh, well, you know, it'll be okay if they're separate, but equal women can have, can be equal, but it doesn't mean they need to have the same. There's a complementarianism in evangelical Christianity, which says, that men and women are different and they complement each other and they have different roles. Men have this role and women have this role. It's not that they're not equal, it's that they complement each other. And so they don't have to be equal, which is really just the old separate but equal thing. And what ends up happening is there isn't equality. There is oppression. And there is an unbalance of power that puts people in a bad situation. You wanna know why women don't leave these situations? It's because they don't have access to resources. So when you start taking away access to contraception, when you start taking away access to healthcare, when you start taking away access to childcare, when you set it up in this kind of a situation, you, you, women are oppressed. Children are going to get the brunt of it. Children will absolutely 100% take the brunt of it. They have in every single society where there's inequity, children quietly, silently. Afterwards, we go back and go, wow, how could this all be happening? Because they have no power. Even growing up, if I had told people I was being spanked, most people would have thought, well, yeah, my parents spanked me. No big deal. Because in our society, we still don't see hitting our children as a negative thing. We see it as a parent's right to choose. If I went and hit another adult person, it would be assault. But if I hit my child, I have the right to do that as a parent. So again, you keep coming back to when these structures are in place, when there is not protection of rights, these rights have to be protected because they're not just protected naturally in our social structure. Maybe if we lived in a different social structure, we'd have a different set of laws, but we don't. We live in this one. And your conversation about the rise of evangelicalism, getting into politics, not keeping a separation between people's religious ideas and politics. It is scary to me. Um, it's something that's very upsetting to me because I watched the pot boil. When this church first started, 
women could get up and give give um, uh, announcements at the beginning of the meeting. And um, everybody thought of it as this grassroots, you know, we're just going to live authentically for Jesus coming out of the hippie movement, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. And by the end, you know, my Not dad good. was asking a local school teacher to, um, who was also a leadership in his church, to please go find some shackles so that he could chain me in my bedroom. Fortunately, this was the 90s, and BDSM shops were not available as, as locally, and you couldn't go online and order these things. And so I didn't end up getting shackled in my room. But he literally told the guy to go do it. And this teacher, who was a mandatory reporter and knew this stuff, went and did it and came back and reported he couldn't find any. So again, I've lived this experience. Yeah. And you yeah. can say, well, it won't happen like that in our society. We didn't it think is. it would happen to us either. My mom did not get involved in that group thinking that this was going to be the life she lived. And she will tell you that to this day. Absolutely. And and to to clarify too, we know that that this is already happening with black and brown women and communities. And now it's getting, that's why, you know, I get about, y'all know me on social media, don't hand ring folks. It's happening already. It's just going to start happening more plainly to you. And that graduate, I, by the way, I loved how you snuck in the whole BDSM in the nineties thing. Thank you for that. that awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, and that y'all is a true story, by the way, you think and I don't have it. a problem with BDSM, by the no. way. Yeah, but it, that? I'm okay just, with that. It just saved you with the, with the lack of it at the, for that time period. Absolutely. Exactly. That, that was such a brilliant, I don't want to call it a soliloquy, but just take down our, our, <laughs> of what, what the situation is. Like folks, if you think, if you think we really are only three or four decades from the repeat of that too, and that the separation of separation of church and state, you couldn't have said it better as, as the, the urgency for that too, because she and I are both walking examples of what that looks like when it becomes without any type of um, monitoring. I mean, it's just, it was an ecosystem within itself. And this exists today too. What we're talking about that time back in the, back in the day, but it exists again. So um, I got out in, in 82, you got out and then the work I know, I know that you have done a ton of work. There's one thing that I've discovered recently because I've been unpacking a ton, one just shedding, um, shedding the skin of the, the, of the, the bindings, literally the shackles of that mm-hmm. also coming yeah. to terms with my own spirituality, my own empathic, uh, skills, which, you know, many women have a lot of the, the things, but I've, um, one thing that I've recently discovered is something called CPTSD. And I don't know if you've heard of that or complex PTSD, and in the last year, have, yeah. Yeah, have you? Okay. Cause I, I, it's been new to me in the last year and I, you know, doing shadow work, I think is an interesting one, not to get too woo, but, mm-hmm. you know, really kind of looking at all that, you know, now that we have the sovereignty and the power with, within reason, you know, there's mm-hmm. always the things that happen, yeah. um, really digging into complex PTSD, which is something that happens yeah. with folks like this, where, where it's not just an, an incident, a one-off, um, as horrible as it is, but, yeah. but long, long, long-term trauma. And, and some of the yeah. things that, that come with that, that I know that we had is, you know, feeling as if you are completely different to other people, feeling like nobody can understand what happened to you. I know this happens with a lot of difficulty controlling emotion, constant feelings of emptiness or hopelessness. So I know that you've done a lot of the, the work on that too, to, um, um, EMDR is, is something yeah. I'm also looking at as well. Yeah. So there, there's another, there's, there's a other side to it. And 
you know, it's, it's the thriving yeah. rather than just aging out. Like we did in a sense of, you know, you, yeah. just, you finally just get old enough that you can handle it. You know? Yeah. I, I don't think we ever get old enough to handle it. Honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we get old enough to hide it pretty well. And then I think as <laughs> well we get said. older, like once we get into our forties, et cetera, thirties and forties, mm-hmm. uh, especially forties and then into your fifties, I think it comes back up. I, I think that, I do too. that it resurfaces. Like the energy Absolutely. of youth starts to fade away and, and all of that starts to come up to the, the like work afterwards side of things. Um, so I think I'm very fortunate in that I'm fairly certain I'm somewhere on the autistic spectrum. My son is autistic. Um, my youngest child is my youngest son is also being um, currently uh, evaluated for autism. Both of them very high functioning. Um, but I see a lot of things that I'm like, Oh, that makes more sense. Okay. That makes sense. So because of that, what I had done was create, and this is actually something that's very, very common in women who have, who are on the spectrum. Um, I created the rules of engagement for personal interaction. So boys tend to, um, it with autism tend to obsess over things like objects or, or, or washing machines or trains or, or, you know, things like uh, that kind of thing girls tend to do it in social structures. They tend to obsess over a person or a social structure. And so what my brain did was it created this social structure and these patterns of interaction and qualified them and quantified them and tracked them and all of that kind of stuff. So when I got out as an adult, immediately that's what I went to, researching and reading on what what do other people already know about the way humans interact with each other and why we do what we do um, and so on and so forth. I am also empathetic, which um, whether or not that's something autistic people can do, I believe they can because I absolutely am. Um, but as a result, um, I, I had to learn how to honor the empathy inside of me because I have been taught to always ignore my feelings or if I had used my feelings as the basis of an argument, to be dismissed for that. And so I went very much full force at first with just practical, like here's the structure and, and so on and so forth. Um, over time, what I found was that my gut instinct oftentimes told me before what the structure proved out afterwards, what my observations proved out afterwards. And um, my biological father is also a juvenile onset diabetic. And so I grew up with him testing his blood sugar, you know, before a meal, test his blood sugar, take a certain amount of insulin after the meal, test blood sugar. And I always think of this analogy. Um, my, uh, my dad's body did not handle sugar correctly. And so he had to use an external validation system to figure out if he was going to be okay or, or if he needed to do something. And so what I had learned, what I started learning to do was create an external system for myself by which I could check in and see if what was going on for me met criteria that I had determined as normal. And I know it's starting to sound really weird, but I figure it's like I had a glitch in my programming. Like I wasn't going to just normally process things the way other people normally process things. And so I needed, I needed my blood sugar test only for the way that I processed information. And so I started out with just a lot of study. I, I read and everything I could get my hands on. Um, eventually, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I started going to some therapy. I had a really hard time finding a therapist I liked. And so for a long time, I didn't use therapy um, other than my husband, who has been an amazing support to me. 
um, amazing, amazing support to me. And then I ended up um, at uh, about two years ago, right before the pandemic started, I came to this place where I said, okay, I've been able to figure out all these patterns, but I still have things that are just underlying for me that just, they just glitch. And, and that glitch is so painful. I don't, I don't want to do that. And so what I did was I went and I, I got a therapist. I did EMDR. I started looking into uh, psilocybin, um, K ketamine treatments, things like that. I haven't done any of that. Um, most of what I've seen in terms of the research has been around people who have like a a traumatic event, like a violent rape, or they went to war or whatever. When you say complex PTSD, that is really what we have because our PTSD actually starts at very early developmental years mm. for me from birth. And so when the when the PTSD occurs during those developmental phases of life, um, it's actually really deeply ingrained in you. And so it is very much more complex. And so I've been a little hesitant to go into that kind of treatment until I see a little bit more evidence around how mm -hmm. it works with complex PTSD. But my last therapist and I, it worked really well. I really liked her. She gave me some really practical tools. So again, I don't think that everybody needs to go to therapy necessarily, mm -hmm. but I do think that everybody needs to address it as though there is something that is not my fault, but also doesn't work. And then take on actions to figure out how to reframe your story. I, one thing I loved about my mom really did. And, and there's a lot of things she gave me growing up that I held on to and that helped me in my recovery. The first one was she'd always say, rub the magic genie lantern. Where do you want to be? You can always get there from where you are. And so there were points at 18 and 19 where I was suicidal because I was so depressed. Um, and, and so isolated and involved in abusive relationships and so on and so forth. Um, but that, that voice in the back of my head, there's always a way to get where you want to go from where you are. That was the first one. And then the other one is my mom would always say, you can change your story. Change your story, Rachel. Just, just change your story. And so that's the other thing is, is what is it in my story that is empowering this negativity for me? What is it in my story that is making me submit myself to toxicity, to abuse, to dysfunctional? Mm -hmm. Or what is it in my story that is causing me to bleed on the people who didn't cut me? Because having a kid at 20 years old, and I had my first child at 20, um, on my own, out of wedlock, that's a whole nother side. Go read my story. Oh, I bet the church that. loved that one. Yeah, um, that was a real, yeah, they, they yeah, loved that, that one. That was a big mm -hmm. one. Um, but, uh, being a parent made me not want to do to my son what had been done to me and forced me to look at myself through a different set of eyes, through his eyes, and realize that I didn't want to drag him through that chaos. And I was. I was totally dragging my kids through chaos. And and so it you'll you'll get a lot of courage if you mm. can if you can reframe your story in that way. Like you will learn to be really brave in areas that you never thought you would be. Um, so there's all kinds of little tips and tricks that have helped me. You know, if you're afraid, at least stand still and let the fear go through you and then take the, I mean, all of those kinds of things. Um, but yeah, yeah. There, there, it's a lot of work, but it's not bad work. And here's the gold and the silver lining. If you do this work, you learn about yourself in a way that a lot of people never do because they never have the impetus to. And, mm -hmm. and you can actually do incredible things overcome incredible things, develop incredible things, Sure. you know, to your point about entrepreneurship, you know, you can build your own business, you can create your own life, you can reframe your relationships. 
my husband and I's relationship is nothing today like it was when we first got together. And it's the growth that both of us have done. And you can do that. This is something that can be done. Even in our country, to go back to the political, even in our country, we can build a community and we can make a change. It doesn't have to be a binary choice. This could actually be a really great outcome. We could take the next step. So it feels like we're going back, but it's a liminal space. And there is, there is opportunity in these liminal spaces to actually make a difference and take a step forward. Let me give you a little irony. My little soliloquy. No, no, it was good. I feel like I just went to church. Hallelujah. Oh, honey, that was, that was wonderful. And and I love that, you know, that something there's something is wrong, but it it, it doesn't work, but it's, it's not my fault, but it doesn't work. I mean, that's, that's so empowering. And thank you for bringing that, that up to two things for me that I have realized. I do think that me now being in my mid fifties has spurred something on to like, okay, now it's time. Well, what's this next level of really digging into things? Because the more things have come up that I was really coasting through. So I'm pleased about that. I think yeah. menopause is a huge piece of it as well. You're uh, you have a lot. <laughs> get ready for that one. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I am. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm past it. I'm over the bridge. And um, you know, looking back at a lot of the journey, and it's been. And I feel. And I love being in a wonderful space. I do call myself a crone, which I think offends. That word offends a lot of people. I love the word crone. It's just wise and in, yeah. a, in a different space. And then, you know, reminder for me too, my abuse had actually started it too. So you're right. That is at that formative, formative years. It just, the church happened to loop in and yeah. be at the worst cocktail of those things. But boy, that gives yeah. me so much hope. We're going to wrap this up, but you had said, uh, I, I know you have something very interesting about believing and truth because we're wrapping it up about how, how are you feeling? About <laughs> what, what's, what's your religion? What's your spirituality? Yeah. And then we're going to get out of here. So I, I think I probably, if we're talking just straight up uh, theology, I would probably identify closest to agnostic. Um, I grew up, we grew up obviously in a, in a world of absolutes. Um, they knew absolute truth. They had the Bible. They knew what God wanted. They knew what God's will was, so on and so forth. Um, and as a result, I have come to the conclusion that if absolute truth exists, which I don't know that I believe it exists, but if absolute truth exists, I don't know that humans can know it. Kind of that idea of even observation of something changes it. So um, I don't know that absolute truth can exist, and I don't believe that humans can know it. And I think that what happens is when humans think they know absolute truth, they use it to oppress one another. They use it to decide who qualifies and who doesn't qualify. They use it to decide how people should behave. And it always comes from their own perspective, their own absolute truth. Um, So for me, I, I, I don't, I can't say that there is no such thing as God because that would be absolute truth. And I don't believe that. But at the same time, I also can't say that um, I believe in God because I definitely don't believe in the formalized God, uh, you know, that that a lot of people think about. I do believe there's probably something else outside of just ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just think there's too much experience that way. And I do believe that faith and I always use the difference between faith and religion. I do believe that faith can be a really good thing. It can prompt you to treat yourself and others better because you believe there's something bigger than yourself. Um, and you believe that everybody is really, truly equal. That could, the faith can absolutely prompt that. Um, I think religion oftentimes tends to take that and turn it into a structure of oppression, which is unfortunate. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you just attended the Church of Rachel. I'm going to close that out with my tuning fork because, you know, it's one of my favorite things. There we go. Thank you for thank you for joining us today, Rachel. This has been absolutely wonderful. Thank I so you. appreciate you. This All has right, been so much fun. <laughs> wonderful and cathartic. All right, everyone, take care. Hey, thanks for hanging in there. If you made it this far, kudos. Make sure to check out the show notes. We're going to have all the links, including Rachel's manifesto story and information about the assembly, which is the name of that shitty ass cult. Oh, and make sure to check out the amazing company that Rachel started with her brother. You can find out more at michaelmcumbergroup.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review, especially if it's a good one. If you really like the podcast and you want to show it, head on over to shitwedonttalkaboutpodcast.com, click on the patrons button and become a full-time supporter of the podcast. And if you want your very own podcast and you don't know where to start, go to helix-interactive.com and get yourself some and tell them that Mia sent you. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.